Before the Court. Welcome back to Before the Court. In the fourth episode, we are excited to have Christina Kothrakis to explore her career as a criminal defence lawyer. As a warning, some listeners may find this episode triggering, especially as Christina discusses criminal cases towards the end of the episode. Saying that Christina has an extensive career as a criminal defence lawyer would be an understatement, and it's safe to say she'll provide invaluable information to students as we discuss her career. To start, Christina, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So uh, my name's uh, Christina Kothrakis and I am a criminal lawyer. I've been working in criminal law uh, since I was first admitted in 2007. I am a partner of the firm that I work at now and I'm also the deputy co-chair of the criminal law section of the Law Institute of Victoria. Thank you for that, Christina. Um, when did you first realise that you were you wanted to pursue a career in criminal law and what steps did you take to establish yourself in this field? I didn't want to pursue a career in criminal law while I was at university and so I was really late to the piece uh, in coming to that decision and it wasn't until I did College of Law, which was um, after I finished my degree, that I was introduced to criminal law a bit more and I actually got a sense of what it was like to be a criminal lawyer. Um, the university that I attended didn't really uh, put criminal law forward as um, one of the viable options. They were more uh, geared towards commercial law. And so it just really wasn't uh, in my mind. But when I was doing the College of Law course, um, I got to see what it was like to actually conduct a plea hearing, um, to see what kinds of matters I'd be doing and what it all involved. And then I realised that it was an area that I wanted to practice in. So after I finished that, I just sent out a heap of applications to criminal lawyers. I just literally got on the internet and, and looked around for lawyers. And there was one person who responded and he was a sole practitioner working in Richmond and it just so happened that one of his employees had left recently and he needed some more help and so he uh, called me up and said you know come in on Monday for a trial and I ended up staying with him for a couple of years and he um, he was really tough he practiced quite a bit of tough love um, but he was a great lawyer and so I got to establish some really good habits pretty early on. And um, yeah, and so then after I finished uh, with him after a couple of years, I then moved to the firm that I'm at currently. So I'm curious to hear, you mentioned this just before, but what was your professional journey in becoming a partner at Dugan George? Um, I think that in order to become a partner, uh, and certainly my experience was, you need to establish yourself as someone that has a strong work ethic and someone that they can see themselves working with for a long time. I mean, um, if they're going to offer you a partnership, it's because they um, value you as a person and as a lawyer and someone that they know that they can make business decisions with uh, as time goes on. And so I think that is really, really important. And that was obviously something that um, I was able to demonstrate to the current partners uh, and directors at this firm. Um, maintaining a really good reputation in your industry is really important um, because when you go out to court and you're interacting with um, other lawyers and judges and magistrates and your clients you're representing yourself as an individual lawyer but you're also representing the firm and so they need to know that they're going to invite someone into the partnership that's going to maintain the firm's good reputation and so 
um, I guess I was also able to do that, which is, <laughs> which was a, a bonus for me. But being an accredited specialist was a prerequisite um, to become a partner. And so it was something that I wanted to do for my own professional journey, I guess, but something that was required if I wanted to be a partner. And so um, you can become eligible to apply for accreditation after five years of practice. I think I waited a little bit longer for, can't really remember the reason now, but I, I waited a bit longer to sit the exam. I probably did that about seven years in or, or so. Based on what you said there, could you expand on that advice, but for students? So how can students differentiate themselves from other law students? And what opportunities do you think are available to students seeking a career in criminal law? Um, I think that while people are still studying, it's a good idea to do um, you know, different subjects that are related to criminal law. So, for example, when I was doing my degree, um, my university offered a subject in forensic medicine. And that involved things like looking at pathology reports, crime uh, scene investigation, blood splatter, um, DNA, all of that sort of stuff. And I found, I found that fascinating at the time that I was studying it. But you can obviously see the relationship between that and you know, what I do in my job as a criminal lawyer, because that is a lot of what we do. Um, I think that while studying, it's also a really good idea to just connect with, um, with some criminal lawyers that are, you know, available to speak with for either mentoring on either a kind of casual uh, basis, or if you want to actually establish yourself with someone and ask them whether they would be prepared to, um, you know, offer advice, um, uh, provide maybe some access to some work that they're doing just so that you can see what kinds of things uh, criminal lawyers are working on. Um, shadowing lawyers is a really good uh, thing to do. And, you know, if you're looking for a part-time job or something like that, then getting a job as an admin assistant can be really, really beneficial. Uh, one thing that we have done um, many times over in my time at, at this firm is to hire law students as admin assistants to the lawyers. And then once they are qualified, um, it's a pretty good foot in the door uh, to then become uh, a lawyer at that firm. And it just gives you invaluable experience around, um, you know, the court process and, uh, and all the lingo. <laughs> So you mentioned that you were an accredited criminal law specialist. What does this actually involve? You said that you have to take an exam? Yeah, so um, it's an exam that's done in three parts. And so there's um, a three-hour or three-and-a-half-hour written component. Brutal. And because we hadn't done those since university and we were like, oh, God, we've forgotten how hard it is to study for exams. We were very rusty. Um, and it also involved um, a component where you are given a problem. So you, you go, um, you know, at your allocator time, they give you a, a mock example and they say, all right, um, you're the lawyer, pretend the examiners are um, the partners of your firm. You need to go into the partners and explain to them what advice you would give your client in this situation. So that's something that you need to do essentially on the spot. So you get about half an hour or so to prepare what advice you'd give. And the third component is um, a mock hearing. And so 
they give you a problem and they say, we now want you to go into court and conduct a bail application. And they actually have real magistrates and you actually go to the courthouse and um, you conduct a bail application so that they can examine you to ensure that you're <laughs> doing it properly and that you meet the standard that's required for accreditation. So it's pretty gruelling actually. Um, and, you know, I was, I think I said before, about seven years out. I don't know whether that's entirely accurate, but there were some people there that had been out of uni for like 20 years. <laughs> so I felt really sorry for them for having to get back into exam mode. <laughs> I just on a bit of a different note, Christina, um, do you feel that um, completing a Bachelor of Science with a major in psychology has assisted your career? Absolutely. Psychology is so relevant to the practice of criminal law. We deal with a lot of people with mental illness um, and we often have to engage psychologists and psychiatrists and neuropsychs um, to determine any diagnoses that might be present, but also to determine whether and to what extent, if so, the mental illness contributed to the offending. And so quite a bit of um, what's involved is trying to understand what happened and why, and that's often in a mental health context. And there are some sentencing principles which apply, which says that if a person um, is suffering from a mental illness, then they should not be held to the same standard as those that don't have the mental illness. And so there's actually quite a complicated area of law around well, how much of a discount do you give them? Uh, how much of a break do we give them? That really depends on how severe the, the illness is and how uh, related the illness was to the actual commission of the offence. There needs to be a nexus between the two. And so quite a lot of the submissions are, are centred around, you know, the, the mental health issue that the person has and analysing the diagnoses and so forth. So hugely beneficial to me. Um, I've always had an interest in it just personally. And I think that that might be one of the reasons that I love criminal law so much because it involves analysing and delving into human behaviour. And, um, and I think that what makes a good criminal lawyer is if you have a good understanding of human behaviour and that obviously is, is the work of, um, of psychology. So, yeah, really beneficial. My chemistry minor, I'm not sure whether I've used that too, too much. I think I've forgotten all of it, but... <laughs> it's good to hear that your other degree has helped you in criminal law, especially. I know I'm doing criminology and law. There's a lot of people doing commerce and law, so it's good to hear that other uh, double degrees do help, especially science and psychology. Um, I'm curious to hear, how did you come to specialise in areas such as sexual offences and white-collar crime? And were these always a passion of yours or did you develop this as you began your career? Yeah, this was something that developed over time. Um, it wasn't something that I set out to do. Um, you know, over the years, I would just, you know, tend to uh, do more and more cases that involved, you know, sexual offending or white-collar crime. And I just grew to really like them. They're, they're both really hard I think and some of the hardest areas to practice in um, with sex cases there are so many things to balance like you need to when you're addressing the court you've got to get the tone right you need to be appropriate in the way that you make your submissions and in terms of how you know you deal with clients a lot of them um a lot of them do plead guilty, but there are a lot that plead not guilty to the offences that they've been charged with. And 
nothing can be more difficult, I guess, than being uh, accused of a sex crime if you say that you didn't um, actually commit the offence. The stigma which attaches to it is incredibly difficult. And so, um, you know, from a client interaction perspective, it can be really, really tricky to deal with those uh, clients and helping them through that is, is really rewarding. Um, and preparing for the trial is also really interesting because in these types of cases, there are, you know, no independent witnesses. And so from a forensic perspective where you have one person that says something, another person that says another, well, how do you figure out which version you're going to accept? And so uh, working with um, barristers to work on a case narrative and to find out, well, how are we going to put this case? How is it that we're going to, to try and convince 12 people on a jury that our client's version is more accurate is a really interesting process and one that I really love. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. If you could spend more time in another area of criminal law, is there something that you've always wanted to explore a bit more or spend a bit more time on? Um, look, I actually do the full range. Like I w will represent people on one day in a driving case and then the next day um, it'll be a robbery. The next day it'll be... Um, you know, a theft or an assault. And so I'm pretty fortunate that I do get to experience the broad, the broad range. Well, it certainly sounds like you're involved in some quite serious matters when it comes to the criminal justice system. Um, how do you believe that lawyers in your area can promote change within the criminal justice system? I think that the most effective way of um, being able to have an impact is to join committees like the Law Institute of Victoria um, have got their criminal law section. And the reason for that is, as a lawyer, we have to follow and apply the law as it is. And the opportunity for change comes from those groups that actually get to advocate for change. And... Um, you know, we get to, uh, we get consulted when there's proposed legislative reform, we get to provide input before uh, the law changes, but we also get to provide input once it's been um, implemented because we're the ones on the ground that actually see how it works in effect. And so sometimes there are unintended consequences of laws that, le that the legislators didn't uh, didn't consider. Or if there is an issue that we see that's emerging, the Law Institute as a body uh, will write to the relevant minister and say, look, this is an issue that, that our members have experienced and we think it needs to be addressed. And we get an opportunity to actually sit at the table with, um, with ministers and decision makers to be able to say, look, these things are an issue and they need to be, they need to be changed. And so that is definitely a way that people can get involved. Wow, it's really interesting to hear that you actually have some sort of influence on the changes. Like, it's nice to hear that it isn't just you're not being heard, even though you're the one actually working in the area. So that's good to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that um, I think that when you can see that there is a body like that that can advocate for change, it's really exciting and it makes you want to be a part of it. Absolutely. Following on from that, is there any policies or current legal issues that you're particularly interested in? Um, I would say that at the moment, the thing that I'm um, really interested is this concept of the spent conviction scheme. So what that is, is um, when a person gets a criminal record in Victoria, it stays there forever. 
And so if someone's going to do a police check, even 15, 20 years after the fact, um, that court outcome will come up on their record and it can be really, really hard for them to move on. So if you, you know, got into some trouble, you know, particularly as a young person, let's just say you're 18, 19, 20 years old and you, uh, and you do something wrong, but there's 10, 15 years that's passed and you've been a model citizen, nothing wrong at all. To have to keep bringing that old matter up and having to explain to employers or to have to, you know, say yes to convict to whether you've got previous convictions when you're travelling, um, to be prohibited from doing certain things because you need to have a clear police check. Um, it just seems so unfair if people have tried to do the right thing after after getting into trouble. And so that's something that is, that, uh, is emerging now. There have been some... Um, people really lobbying for this for a long time because Victoria is, I think, either the only state or certainly one of the only states in Australia that doesn't have a spent conviction scheme. So the idea is that after 10 years, depending on what type of charge it was and what the outcome was, it can fall away from your record. So if you had something that's relatively low level, you can just get on with life after that period of time. You don't have to keep explaining yourself. And I think that is really, really important. Yeah, I like I hadn't even heard that that was a thing. So it's really I completely support that to be honest. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> um, on a different vein, um, mediation and restorative justice mechanisms seem to be a prominent and important part of the modern criminal law system. Could you share your experience with these and your views on their importance? Um, I actually think that a lot more can be done in this area. Um, we don't have a mediation process as it were as part of the um, resolution process or part of the sentencing process in um, the adult jurisdiction certainly the children's court has got something called a group conference and this is where when a person is pleading guilty to a charge where appropriate what you do is you you go and you sit in a room with all the relevant people. And so the victim is sitting there, the support people, maybe the parents are there as well, the accused person's there with their lawyer. And everyone gets to talk about how the person's offending affected people. And it can be a really healing process for the victim to be able to be heard. And if they don't feel comfortable being there themselves or speaking for themselves, they can have a representative there saying to that person, look, what you did to that person had a consequence and this is how it affected them. They felt too scared to leave the house for a while. They were always looking over their shoulder. It affected their work or it affected their study. Um, and the person feels really bad. <laughs> and they get to see, um, I guess, what the impact is of their behaviour. And there have been studies done that have shown that um, it can have a really big impact on recidivism rates. And so I think that it's a great thing to do. Unfortunately, we don't do that in the adult jurisdiction. And I'm not quite sure why we don't, because I think that it can have equal benefit um, there. So we do have a thing called a diversion system, which is where the person, if it's low level offending and it's first time um, before the court, um, they can uh, be diverted away from the regular criminal justice system and the benefit for them is that they don't have a criminal record at the end of it if the magistrate agrees. And the victim in that matter is consulted, but they're not, they're not really part of the process as a mediation as such. So, yeah, I do think that 
there's a long way to go to be able to use that more in um, especially adult sentencing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good to hear that there has been studies to show its effectiveness. So hopefully it will lead to it being implemented sooner rather than later. That's right. Here's hoping. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How do you think the emphasis on resolving matters before going to trial through other means has impacted your practice in this area as well as just the practice in general? Um, Well, we always look for opportunities to resolve cases. We don't um, just either, you know, plead not guilty for the sake of it. And we do know that there are benefits to our client for resolving cases early. For example, um, there is one of the principles in the sentencing process is that if you plead guilty, particularly at an early opportunity, you get a discount uh, in your sentence for pleading guilty. Um, So there are benefits to our clients. Um, The ways in which we go about uh, resolving uh, cases is firstly through discussions with the prosecution to see whether we can come to an agreement. Um, If no agreement can be reached early on, then we might need to progress it through the criminal process until uh, we get to test the evidence a bit. And what I mean by that is if there are serious charges that are ultimately heading towards um, a trial in the county court, um, there is a hearing called a contested committal hearing. And that is where um, the prosecution witnesses in the case come to court and they give evidence. And that's not in front of a jury. So that's essentially um, part of the um, preliminary hearing process. But you get to test your case. You get to cross-examine witnesses and you get to see, well, um, is it good for us or is it good for the prosecution? And after that, there's an opportunity to resolve um, the case again because you're in a better position to understand your case. So they're really the, the main opportunities there are for resolution in the context of there not really being mediation options available. Just following on from that, do, do many of your clients plead not guilty? Is that very common or do, are, most of, are most people sort of pleading guilty or trying to settle things beforehand? Yeah, look, um, a lot of people plead guilty and um, it might not be to what the charges started out being because, as, I, as I've just explained, there is that process of negotiation. And so quite often our clients will say, well, I did half of it, but I didn't do the other half or I did this, but I didn't do that. And so you get to go to the prosecutors and say, well, you know, we'll plead guilty to this and not that. And if they agree, then that's, that's great. It's really only where there is a real dispute uh, about the facts of the case or um, if pleading guilty would mean that they're going to get a huge penalty. And sometimes our clients' uh, instructions are affected by that. Sometimes they think, well, geez, there's no benefit to me in just going ahead and pleading guilty if I'm going to get years in jail anyway. I may as well try my luck. <laughs> um, so I think that probably um, 80% of people resolve their cases and 20% have to go all the way to a full contested hearing in the magistrate's court or if it's a county court matter and you're running a jury trial, then it's probably, you know, approximately 20% of those cases end up in jury trials. On the topic of jury trials, um, what have your experiences been like uh, representing client at jury trials and how would you say they differ from judge alone? Well, judge alone is a very, very new concept to us um, here. Um, We 
didn't have judge alone trials in uh, criminal cases until COVID hit. And so I think that there's been one case that's gone through uh, the judge alone process so far. There are a few more that have applied to go through that process. And so we're not really sure how it's going to work in practice. But as criminal lawyers, we are firm believers in the jury process. I would much rather try and convince 12 people or actually one or two people, it's all you need out of, out of a jury of 12 to believe you. I'd much rather take my chances on, uh, on a jury than I would on a judge alone. But it really depends on the case and it depends on what your defence is. Some cases are just more suited to appealing to 12 peers and say 12 you know, regular people from the community hearing the case and them deciding what they think as opposed to one judge. Um, so really, really early on in that process. And so, um, yeah, I guess in about a year's time when we've had a few more cases go through uh, the judge alone process, I'll be able to answer that question a bit better. But at the moment, um, I'm all for the juries. <laughs> um, but jury trials are, are fascinating. I mean, the process from start to finish is really interesting. And, and uh, we have got an open court system. And so, you know, you guys are able to just go and sit in a trial and listen and watch. Um, there are some types of cases where it's a closed court. So for sexual um, offending, when the complainant herself or himself, depending on the case, is um, giving evidence, then it's a closed court and nobody is allowed in apart from the lawyers and the accused person. But otherwise, it's an open justice system. And so um, often there are uh, observers that go in. And so once our jury trials kick off again after COVID finally leaves us, um, it would be a really great thing for people to do just to go and sit in court and, uh, and observe. It starts off with the empanelment process, which is where you actually pick the jury. It's not like in America we get to ask them questions. All we know about people before they start the jury um, trial is their occupation. Um, we now empanel by number so that we don't know people's names. But, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. So from empanelment right through to the, you know, the barristers addressing the jury and it's just great to hear the arguments, you know, come together after all of the evidence has been given. It's, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I personally find um, everything about juries and jury selection very interesting. I remember reading a while ago that there was some discussion about implementing like expert juries for particularly difficult fraud cases and things like that. Have you ever considered that or thought that that would be a good option for the criminal justice system to take a step in? Um, look, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think that there is something really sacred in a jury just being 12 random people. Um, and it does become a problem where the case itself is really technical. And so frauds are a great example where the content itself is just hard to understand. And so sometimes we think, oh, geez, you know, this, a person actually needs a commerce degree to be able to understand this, or if it's a really complicated medical issue, you're thinking, oh, geez. Um, and particularly in things like, um, like a culpable drive matter, which is where, you know, it's a car accident where there's been a fatality as a result of it. And you've got, experts on either side. So the prosecution have got their um, crash reconstruction expert who is an engineer talking about, well, we've reconstructed this and we think that the car must have been going at this speed 
and they give you, you know, the formula that they've used to figure it out. And we think, well, how do we know? We've got no idea if he's right. So then we have to get our own experts. And then it becomes a battle of the experts on maths. And, you know, it's just, how's anyone meant to know if they're a lay person? But we think that part of it is just, you have to be able to explain these things in a way that's understandable. And so um, on the one hand, I think that, you know, it kind of makes sense to have people that are, you know, maybe all mathematicians or engineers to uh, to assess it. But I, I still think that I'm favouring the the concept of, you know, regular people being jury, mem jury members. I have a quick question. Um, as law students, I, or even just normal people in general, I think naturally people are going, how could you defend people who are being prosecuted along those lines? How yeah. do you work in, sexu especially sexual offences, how do you go about working in that field and being unbiased and trying to move forward with a presumption of innocent until proven guilty? I think that if you're going to be a criminal defence lawyer, that is just your inclination in any event. It, I can certainly speak from my own experience. My default position is open-mindedness no judgment whether they did it or didn't do it it's just not it's not for me to to judge them if they have committed the offense that's for the court to do um i think that understanding that everyone's got a role to play in the justice system and mine isn't to do the job of the judge and the prosecutor and the defense lawyer um, everybody is entitled to um, unbiased advice and representation and we're not we're not defending behaviour by saying, oh, look, it's no big deal or, you know, doesn't matter. We're actually, when we're addressing the court, if the person's pleading guilty, we're acknowledging this is really serious, um, you know, where appropriate, or acknowledging the impact that it would have had on the victim. And so we're not really conflicted in that type of way. Um, our job is to just put it into context so that the court can understand well, how and why did this happen? And how can we be satisfied it's not going to happen again? Um, and, I mean, I guess the other side of it is where a person says, I didn't do it. And, again, it's not for me to think to myself, oh, did he, didn't he, is he lying to me? If he says he didn't do it and he says, look, I don't accept the allegation, well, then that's that. He or she have got the right to be represented. And so you kind of got to think to yourself, if you were wrongly accused of a crime, what would you want your lawyer to do? <laughs> Thank you for that. I know we're moving on to a little bit of a different note, but I know when we were researching questions to ask you, you go down a rabbit hole with all the experience you have because you work with so many different committees so I think I've, I've had to write them down, there's that many. So the Australian <laughs> Securities and Investments Commission, Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, VCAT, and you're also, as you said, a member of the Executive Committee of the Criminal Law Section of LIV. Do you mind speaking and elaborating on your experiences within these organisations and how they may have benefited your career? Yeah, sure. Um, so my involvement with ASIC, IBAC and VCAT um, is not through membership, but more appearing in those jurisdictions. And so ASIC is um, the commission where people that are charged in or alleged to have committed um, 
any kind of breach of financial services or anything to do in the in the commerce sphere go to. So this is things like financial planners that are giving dodgy advice. Um, that's where they go to be investigated and there can be disciplinary action that follows from that um, and then potentially criminal charges that, that flow from it. So ASIC's a really interesting organisation and as is IBAC and that's because they've got really broad and far-reaching powers. And so one of the basic premises of criminal law is um, you don't need to answer any question that might tend to incriminate you. You've got the right to remain silent and that's just, you know, a right that no one can say anything about. They can't, you can't be criticised for invoking your rights against self-incrimination. That doesn't really exist at IBAC and ASIC. They have got laws which compels you to answer. So even if it is going to identify an offence, you have to say, and it's it's a pretty kind of intimidating um, environment to be in. And it's a bit weird when you're in there with your client in these um, sometimes private examinations um, where it occurs just with, you know, you and your client and um, lawyers from IBAC or ASIC. Uh, sometimes they are public hearings, which can be really, really difficult for your client to deal with, to be forced to answer information about bad behaviour in a public forum, really bad. Um, but you have to uh, have your client say the word privilege before every answer because the only, um, the only protection that they have in that forum is they can't use what you say against you in a criminal prosecution. So what that means is... They can't say, we're going to force you to answer and then we're going to be able to charge you. And so they say, well, if you say the word privilege before every answer, then we won't be able to use that directly in a criminal investigation. So it's this really kind of weird thing where they say, what's your name? And they go, privilege, Christina. <laughs> it's <laughs> and you have to keep kind of kicking them under the table to get them to remember to say privilege before every answer. But um, those two um, bodies are, as I said, really, really far-reaching powers in terms of um, the investigative steps that they're able to take. They are able to get phone taps, you know, wire taps uh, on um, mobiles, home phones. They can put listening devices in your house. They've already looked at all of your emails before you even get there. It's so invasive. It is crazy. But they're allowed to do it. Why is it they're why is it that they're allowed to do that? Um, they're allowed to do that because um, this body is trying to get to the bottom of corruption and bad behaviour, and they look at people individually, but they also look at systemic issues, and so that's how things like um, you know practices in banks and financial um, institutions gets identified because they force everyone to come into these secret hearings and they have to spill the beans and they start to see patterns that emerge and you know whether it's just a couple of rotten eggs at certain places or whether it's just a whole industry that have got a bad attitude towards particular things and so they consider it to be really really important. I back uh, a commission which deals with um, corruption so this is things like, um, you know, um, teachers or people from government organisations that instead of 
you know, doing a fair tender for a project where they, you know, take quotations from, you know, several people and they find the best one. They dodge it so that they're giving it to one person who's a mate and they're, they're, um, they're misusing government funds in a corrupt manner. And so, again, it's about identifying individuals that are, that are acting in a corrupt way, but also uh, uncovering systemic corruption. Um, so fascinating places, but tell you what, I would not want to be the person in there. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, VCAT is, my experience with VCAT is more in relation to disciplinary hearings. And so if a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist has gotten into trouble and their, and their medical licence is being affected, then um, I can go to help them with submissions beforehand for trying to keep their registration. Um, but ultimately it ends up at VCAT in front of uh, members there to try and persuade them to uh, maintain the license or at least put some conditions on it so they can keep practicing. Wow. It seems like you're involved in such varied areas of criminal law. It really is. I mean, that's what's one of the great things about crime. You never know what's going to come in the door. Um, mm. And, um, it's really, really broad. And so when you were asking me the question before about what area I'd like to get into, I'm like, I don't even know because I do so much. <laughs> There's <laughs> more out there? What? <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> um, just on a slightly different note, is there any aspect of the criminal law system you were glad to see change? And what do you hope to be changed in the future? To be honest, it's actually really difficult to think of something that I was glad to see change. And that sounds a bit grim, but <laughs> I, I just have found that in the time that I've been a criminal lawyer, all of the changes that have come in that come to mind anyway, have been to take away options that um, are available to an accused person. And so we started off when I first started with, you know, different options as what the penalty could be. Um, there were probably about seven different options or so, or even eight different options that were available to a magistrate or judge when they were deciding what the penalty would be. Um, by that, I mean, you know, a magistrate can impose a fine or they could impose a uh, sentence called a community corrections order, which involves community work, unpaid community work. We used to have things called suspended sentences, and that is a jail term that is imposed but you don't go to jail, it's suspended, it hangs over your head for a period of time. And so they might say to you, uh, I'm going to give you three months imprisonment, suspended for six months. That means that you don't go to jail today, but if you put a foot wrong over that next six months, then you go to jail for three months. It kind of is held in abeyance. I thought they were great <laughs> because it meant that you know, you got to have the penalty for the, um, for the offence, but the person's life wasn't completely ruined by going to jail. And it meant that they were on best behaviour for the next six months because they didn't want to go to jail in the future. Um, but the type of rhetoric that comes out of our government and particularly around election time is tough on crime, got to be tough on crime and, um, you know, jail means jail and all those things about, you know, these terrible offenders that try to get out of it and these terrible defence lawyers that are trying to get their clients out of it. It's just so unhelpful because, again, studies show that sending someone to jail doesn't mean they're going to be less likely to offend in the future. 
And so this is a thing that is so important to me and probably one of the things that I should have mentioned before when you asked me about um, reform that I'm interested in. At the Law Institute, we really push hard for them to change their attitude around that because it does the complete opposite of what they say they're intending to do. That is keeping the community safe and, you know, cleaning up our streets. It just has the opposite effect. It's just unpopular to the community because they don't understand. And so, uh, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way, people just don't have the information. And if they did have the information, which told them that if they spent even a quarter of the money that they spend on prisons in rehabilitation and programs, then that would have a huge impact on community safety. So um, all I've really seen over the years is a reduction in the number of sentencing options available to the court. And that's not something that I'm really big on. Well, it certainly sounds like there's still a lot of room for change within the criminal law industry. Um, I guess moving on to a different question that's probably quite important for students to know before heading into um, criminal law is what type of professional and personal skills do you think it takes to succeed in criminal law? Oh, uh, I think that you need to be pretty robust and resilient. The content is really heavy. Um, the issues that we're dealing with are heavy. The consequences to our clients are really significant and you need to be able to deal with that pressure. It's a very fast paced area. We've got, you know, heavy um, client load, you're in court pretty much every day, you're running around from one place to the other. And so you need to be the kind of person that is able to roll with things pretty well. So for example, um, you know, you don't know whether you're going to be sitting in court waiting to get on for an hour or whether you're going to be stuck there all day. And so your day gets hijacked uh, at any given moment. Um, and so if you're too rigid, then you might not like this area of practice. Um, I think that it helps having a bit of a dark sense of humour <laughs> because criminal lawyers, um, I guess, debrief with each other by just being maybe a little bit inappropriate. And other people, sometimes we think, geez, if people could hear our conversations, I think we were terrible people, but we're not. <laughs> it's just really stressful. And so we like to break the tension by, you know, having a bit of a laugh about things and trying to detach ourselves from what's going on. Um, and so I think that most people find that criminal lawyers are a bit more relaxed than, <laughs> than potentially other areas of law. Um, being comfortable speaking in public is obviously necessary because it's very um, heavily based in court advocacy. Um, being able to talk to a wide range of people. We have some people who have got um, very limited education and so being able to you know, speak to those people in a way that is uh, appropriate. They're going to understand what's happening in the um, in the court system, and you know, your clients range uh, right through to highly educated professional people. And you're also interacting with um, you know judges and and other kinds of professionals. And so, being able to adapt to your audience very um, very easily is is important. Um, and I think definitely not coming from a position of judgment. You need to have the kind of personality where you're not going to be offended easily at all. <laughs> um, and yeah, just having a, a strong sense of social justice, I guess, and being able to keep up the, the good fight when things get, uh, things get a bit difficult. 
So you sort of touched on this question a bit earlier, how you were saying that you love that the criminal law allows you to work in so many different areas of criminal law. Yeah. So what aspect of criminal law continues to excite you and make you want to continue your career in this area? And also what parts of this career could you live without? Ooh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I really, I really like being able to, um, help people that are particularly on like the brink of jail or no jail because if you look at a case and you think wow like at face value this this penalty is is jail but if i'm if i manage to put their circumstances forward in a way that's really persuasive and the judge gets it if they really like get what motivated them understand the context um, and you put their circumstances persuasively and you manage to, you know, persuade the judge to impose a different kind of penalty that isn't jail, that is utterly life-changing to a person. And that is so rewarding to be able to do. Um, and so understanding that, you know, whether it's avoiding jail or avoiding a conviction or just helping support them through what can be one of the most stressful times in their life um, is is just... A real privilege actually because you get to know that person really well you know the ins and outs of their lives like we literally sit down and we have to get their full social history and we start with where were you born and then we start from there and and you get a lot of personal information from them and um some of it is really hard for them to to tell um but it's it's all really important work so i guess recognizing the impact that you can have on a person's life is hugely rewarding what could i live without Oh, it is really difficult to be in that stressful position where a person is saying to you, um, you know, fix my life. <laughs> because they get into trouble and then they say to you, you know, but I can't go to jail. And you're like, well, I can't do everything. I'm not a miracle worker. I guess a question we always get great results from is sort of asking, what are some of your favourite stories as a criminal lawyer, whether that be proudest achievements, success stories, or even just stories you think students might find interesting? I think that it's a really proud moment when, you know, you're a lawyer that is just starting out and, you know, you're starting to gain a little bit of experience and you're starting to figure out what good advocacy is and, you know, you go to court and the judge might say to you after the court hearing finished, um, you know, something about the plea that you conducted, they might compliment you. And that is a really, really great uh, moment. One of my proudest moments, I guess, was when I was still relatively young and I went to do an appeal um, down in Bairnsdale. And this was a county court appeal where I had a young client who um, received a term of imprisonment in the magistrate's court level and he appealed that sentence. So I went along to the county court and um, ultimately the judge did not lock him up. She, she, you know, allowed the appeal and changed the penalty. And as we were kind of wrapping up, I got a note uh, from her associate, who is the person that assists her, saying, uh, can you please um, stay back after court? Her Honour wants to see you in chambers. And I thought at first, I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? I'm in trouble. But she actually just wanted to sit down with me and she said, um, you know, asked me a little bit about myself, where I was from, how long I've been practising, and she said to me that that was one of the most persuasive 
pleas that she had seen um, in her time as a judge and said to me, when, I, when you first started speaking, I was totally convinced it was jail. She goes, but you managed to turn me around and I just wanted to you know, sit down with you and, and just uh, congratulate you and encourage you to, to, keep, uh, to keep it up. And it was just such a nice moment. Like she, she was really trying to be empowering to say, look, this is a tough gig, but, um, you know, you did a really great job and keep it up. That, was, that has stayed with me because it doesn't happen often that you get invited out the back to, um, to sit in chambers with the judge. And so that has, that has definitely stayed with me. Um, there have been some other moments, though, that have stayed with me for other reasons, <laughs> some a bit more embarrassing, uh, where, you know, I was in court once and we, we share robes. And so you know how, like, when you go to the county court, we have to wear, like, the black robes and the white uh, jabbo and, and the wig. And we have, like, <laughs> we have an office set because they're really expensive and so we all just share them. And so I went to court one day and the wig was a bit big for my head and I kind of made this submission a bit wildly and flung my arm out and the wig went flying off my head. <laughs> so that was, um, that was a bit embarrassing. <laughs> and, you know, because we, our clients are all so interesting and, um, and diverse and a lot of them have got, you know, as I was saying before, mental health problems, but a lot have got drug problems. Um, I was making submissions about how my client hadn't used drugs in, um, in a while and he, he told me he's like oh, i've been clean for you know two months and i'm oh wow amazing i'll tell the judge that and as i was um, giving my submission the judge uh, said to me uh, ms kothrakis I'm, I'm a bit curious about your uh, submission that he hasn't been using drugs and uh, she said i'd uh, yeah, turn around and i turned around and my client was essentially passed out <laughs> on the oh, seats nice. behind me and was snoring i'm like ah well yes <laughs> Well, that's not ideal timing. And, and I ended up saying to her that he was actually so stressed about the prospect of going to jail that, um, that he relapsed. Um, so, yeah, not he ideal. that well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Had been doing so well. Um, but, I mean, I guess to give you an idea of what it is actually like to be a criminal lawyer, I'll just give you like a little snapshot of my day today. So it started off with a hearing where... Um, my client was charged with um, assaulting his partner and part of the allegation involved um, strangulation. She goes to the police station. She's got bruises and marks around her neck um, and takes and she says, oh, look, I'm not really wanting to make a statement fully. I just want to, um, you know, get some support and just see what my options are. Um, they do end up charging him with assaulting her because they say, well, look, she's come in complained of strangulation and um, there's bru like bruising around her neck. My client is trying to say that he didn't strangle her and that he was acting out of self-defence. And so now we're having a big argument about how she got marks around her neck if it wasn't from strangulation. And she's also now trying to retract her statement. But the prosecution is saying, well, look, we get this all the time with people that are victims of assaults saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to uh, retract my statement. So we're having this big argument now about did he strangle her? Did he not strangle her? How did she get bruises around her neck if he didn't strangle her? <laughs> and so that was, um, you know, the morning followed by a phone call uh, from an old client who you know, has been to jail many, many times. His poor suffering parents that have to keep coming to court to bail him out. 
you know, complaining that the police have raided his house, they've found ammunition behind, a, you know, an old fridge, and if they find his fingerprints, then he's back in jail for 12 months in breach of his parole. Um, and then followed by a young girl who's been charged with bribery and extortion because her, her she's, so she's 18, and her 17-year-old friend were on a site called um, Sugar Babes. And they were taking very suggestive photos of themselves and um, selling uh, them and other things to older men and then telling the men that they were underage and saying, ha ha, got you, we're underage and now we've got you accepting, um, you know, nude photos of underage girls and we'll report you to the police unless you give us money. <laughs> and so <laughs> they've been charged um, with uh, extorting these men <laughs> For money, it's been um, so. That was just a little snapshot of some of the things that I've done today. Not all of the things, but just some of them. <laughs> what a crazy day! I can't yeah. even imagine. I just just when you think it's going to be normal, it just goes into a whole another crazy no, story. So that's I think exactly it's right. You can't get bored. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, you weren't wrong when you said that you do a lot of different things in criminal laws. It's so varied. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just moving on a little bit. You, as everyone else is, is having to adjust to the pandemic and law students in particular are sort of struggling to now get the work experience and the opportunities that they would have done in person because they're now at home. So do you have any um, tips for law students on things that they can do during the pandemic to get criminal law experience? That is a really challenging issue at the moment. Um, we've actually had some people that have, um, you know, approached us for some experience. And at the moment, the reality of it is that we are all working from home or we're logging into online hearings and there's not the opportunity for us to be able to give links to, uh, to people. And so the traditional way of getting experience at the moment just isn't there until the restrictions ease. Um, but seeing whether lawyers would be prepared to um, provide that, I guess, uh, mentoring and exposure to the types of cases that we're doing, um, either through Zoom calls or, um, you know, some other kind of virtual uh, means is probably what people would need to do at the moment. Um, people can be, I guess, educating themselves by doing um, their own reading uh, of material. If people want to get a, a grasp of um, the law and some um, important cases in different areas uh, of law, there is a website um, that people can go to called the Judicial College of Victoria. And that is a resource that we access all the time. And um, that's where practicing lawyers and judges as well go to to um, learn about what is current with uh, with charges, sentencing principles. Um, it's a great, great resource. And so if people want to be looking um, into that in a bit more detail, then I guess the Judicial College is, um, is there for them. But, um, but yeah, I think that still reaching out to, to lawyers and emailing them to say, look, this is where I'm at in my degree. Um, I've got an interest in potentially pursuing criminal law. Um, you know, is there any way that I can assist you on certain cases or, you know, would you be prepared to um, to have a conversation with me over Zoom where we can touch base and talk? And that way you've established a relationship with someone that once the restrictions ease, that might then move into a shadowing experience once our courts open up again. 
So um, there are still opportunities to make connections with people if that's what um, if that's what you're interested in doing. Sophie also mentioned at our People's Choice panel, Criminal Law, that your website, Dugan George, contains articles in it as well. So students are welcome to have a look through there and have a read if they have a bit of downtime as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our website gets updated pretty regularly to make sure that it's current. And it is intended for people just to get a bit of a snapshot on what um, is involved in the charges and so what is it that the prosecution need to prove in order for um, a person to either be found guilty or whether they should plead guilty um, and some case studies and so sometimes after we finish court we will um, just do a little summary of what the facts were what was argued on the plea and then what the penalty was and how we went about a, uh, achieving that good outcome for our clients and so again that gives an idea of what kind of material we present to the court and what types of submissions are made. Definitely, I'll definitely urge students to have a look. I know I definitely will after all the stories you've told us. <laughs> <laughs> so as our last question, if you could start as a law graduate entering criminal law, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I would not stress too much about which firm um, I went to firstly. Like you don't need to worry about going um, to one of the big firms straight away. And I say big it's big for criminal law, not big as in corporate big, but <laughs> I think people know what we mean. Um, but just to not be embarrassed to ask questions. I think that that was one issue that I had when I first started out. I didn't want to look like I didn't know what the answer was. And that's silly because how can I possibly know unless I've been through it before or I've had the experience? And so I was a little bit too shy to come forward and ask my employer um, questions. And I guess the lesson in that is where you did have a, an employer that was a little bit intimidating, like my first one was, um, there are so many people in our profession that are really accommodating, um, really kind and do want to help people. There are um, either formal mentoring arrangements that uh, lawyers enter into. So, for instance, we've got, um, there is an organisation that's run by uh, some lawyers called Women in Crime. And that is uh, an organisation which really kind of supports and encourages women in the profession to get together. And we have, you know, um, CPD sessions, um, which, you know, we need to get certain um, number of further education points during the year so that we can make sure our skills are current. And so they offer CPD sessions where people come and give talks on sessions. Um, it's social as well. Um, and they have established a pretty formal uh, mentoring program for people. Uh, the Law Institute of Victoria also has a mentoring program if you actually want to be paired with someone or just want to ask advice. But it can be much more informal than that. So just literally grabbing a lawyer that you see at court and saying, hey, I've got this case on today. Can you tell me a little bit about what the magistrate is like? Or I'm just not quite sure what to do. And people are always willing to help. And so don't don't feel shy to ask for help because it can be really hard when you first start out. Thanks for listening and make sure to tune in for the next episode of Before the Court.